thought I would start just asking you a bit about kind of your background as a teacher um, and then specifically how that led you to Abe and his story. Sure. So, yeah, I've been uh, teaching high school for about 20 years. Uh, I took a break after about eight years of teaching to go to law school and got my law degree at Georgetown. I'm actually a member of the bar in Maryland, and I never really practiced. I I, uh, clerked for a judge in Washington, D.C. for a year and really missed teaching. So I'm here with Steve Goldberg, who's been a U.S. history teacher for over two decades. Uh, Much of his career has been focused on helping students connect to history in ways that go beyond the dates and facts found in a textbook. Steve has taught at a variety of public, private, and charter schools. He's also a graduate of Duke University, where he studied public policy as an undergrad, and he later returned to earn a Master's of Arts in teaching social studies. So fast forward to when I met Abe, he, another teacher, our German teacher actually, uh, was the one who, who brought him to the school. And I just saw an email that we were having a Kristallnacht speaker. And so I knew a little bit about what Kristallnacht was and Night of Broken Glass, but I read up on it and I thought, wow, this will be interesting. It was the 80 years since Kristallnacht had happened. So Kristallnacht was uh, the destruction of many synagogues and businesses in uh Germany and Austria in 1938, and this was November of uh, 2018, and Kristallnacht happened on uh, November 9th, 10th. I emailed the woman who, was, who had brought him, and I said, what's the guy's name? <laughs> I'd like to look him up. And so I learned his name was Abe Piasek, and I looked him up that weekend, and uh, I was just floored. At, at, you know, he was in four different camps, he, um, I saw some video of him giving his speeches and he just, he came across as this warm guy who had really awful things happen to him. And uh, it happened to be his 90th birthday on the, there's a document that had his, uh, like a, he didn't have a birth certificate because of the Holocaust, but he had like a certificate that the US government made for him to have an identity and um, he was born, it said on that document, on November 10th. And I was looking at that document. On no- I was looking him up and learning about him on, it was a Saturday, November 10th. Um, so he came to our school on Tuesday, the 13th. Um, he, he spoke four times. Uh, he spoke to our ninth graders at, for 45 minutes and then to our 10th graders. And then he was tired and went home. And then he came back the following week and spoke to our 11th and 12th graders. Okay, so you're teaching, and you're, um, you're teaching U.S. history um, at, that, at that time, right? Yeah. Um, so when you, you have that lens, and you, said, you mentioned you like, to, you like to teach on the civil rights. Yeah, go um, a little more in-depth there. Yeah. So when you hear Abe speak for 45 minutes to a classroom, what, what are you seeing happening with the students that – inspires you or, or makes you think this is really important? I, I guess I didn't, I sort of knew that people move from camp to camp, but I had this flattened view of the Holocaust of, you know, if, if you were grabbed up by the Nazis, you were in one place and that was, you know, you, you tried to survive, you did what you could. 
and if you if you survived to the end and got liberated, then you were a survivor. And Abe really complicated that for me because he was uh, in a ghetto. His hometown was was turned into a ghetto for almost two years, and then he was in one camp called Rodham for two years, taken away from his family, never saw his mother, father, or little sister again. Um, and then he was he had to do a march to. A train station. He'd never seen a train before. When he got taken to Rodham, he went on a truck. He'd never been on a truck before. Like there was one truck in his town in, in Poland in 1930s. Um, so, and then from there he got the train. To, he the train took him to Auschwitz. He went from Auschwitz to a place called Weihingen. He went from Weihingen to a place called Hessenthal. And then he was on a death train to Dachau. If he'd reached Dachau, he probably would have been killed. And that the bombs on either side um, stopped the train and he was liberated by U.S. forces. Um, and that, that's crazy. That's, that, that's five, six crazy things. And a number of brushes with death because he's so small. And it's a mar- miracle that he survived the, uh, the selections where they're looking for the weak and the old and the you know, people who can't be slave laborers. He had some friends who uh, lifted him up by the armpits and risked their lives, right? If they were caught doing that, they all would have been killed. And they did that repeatedly to, to keep him alive. And, they're, they're, you know, anybody who survives the Holocaust, I think, probably has multiple brushes with death. I was just really taken by the story. I wanted to learn more. And I thought Abe was great. Like, he's this, he is this really, really positive funny guy, like not funny inappropriately, but, you know, when he's, you know, he's serious about talking about the Holocaust, but in just in conversing with people, he makes jokes and he's enjoys life. Yeah. So what, so, so then, yeah. So following this kind of first encounter with him and and then reading about his story on your own and, and learning a lot more, what, what did you do from there with him? So when he came back the second time, I, I said, can I follow up with you? And, you know, can I get your email? And he laughed. He doesn't, he doesn't do email. Um, but he, he gave me his phone number. And so a couple of days later, I called him. And he, you know, I thought I'd get an answering machine. Or I didn't know what I'd get. And he just answered the phone. And, uh, and I said, I'd like to you know, follow up and talk with you. And he said, that would be fine. And we set a time to do that. And uh, he you know, offered me tea and had some powdered donuts for me. And I later learned he's the, he was this amazing baker. Um, but I think he was a little bit past his prime or didn't have the right stuff in his house to, to bake. So he offered me like, you know, store-bought donuts. But, you know, he was just very, very sweet. And we, we talked for about an hour and a half. I had this big, long piece of paper where I was trying to do a chronology. I'm like, wait, when did this happen? And when did this happen? And, and we just, we talked like we were buds, you know, like he was my grandfather. And, and when I left, I said, can we follow up again? He said, sure. And so I told some of my friends that I'd done this and they said, you know, did you, you, did you record it? And I said, no, that would be weird. Like I'm talking with him. They're like, you're an idiot. Like, how do, how do you talk to a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor and not record him? I'm like, okay, good, good point. Point well taken. Um, and so when I went, to see him again, it was actually it was Super Bowl uh, Sunday, and um, again I talked to him for about an hour and a half. And at the end of that conversation, I said, "Well, some of my students were interested in going to the Holocaust Museum," and he perked up at that and he said, "Really? M- maybe I'll come with you." Yeah, 
Yeah, so what happened when you went into the Holocaust Museum? Because you've mentioned to me this, this scene that happened. Can you tell me about that? Sure. So we, if, you've, if, uh, if your listeners have been to the Holocaust Museum, when you, when you enter, um, there's like a sort of a greeting area. And that's where a lot of survivors, some survivors don't want to go in to see the exhibits. And so they can meet other survivors or just talk to students or anybody who's interested in the front. And then beyond that, there are elevators you take up to the fourth floor. And we weren't sure if Abe was going to go in or not. And so he was, he was meeting with another survivor and um, he found out there was a cattle car exhibit and he wanted to go see it. And so we, we took the elevator up. When you, when you go up to the fourth floor, you're intentionally crammed in it's into an elevator that feels a little bit like how tightly you'd be crammed into a cattle car. And they show footage of um, liberation of, I'm not sure if it's Auschwitz or what camp it is, but you see some pretty disturbing stuff. Um, and then the doors open. It's got like a diagonal uh, walkway that goes through an actual cattle car from Poland. And so we get in there and he says, he says, everybody here? And we say, yeah. And he described his, what it was like to be in the car in the 1940s. He was on four different cars and he described his, you know, what it was like to be liberated in April of 1945. And at the end he says, you know, my heart was beating, is beating out of my chest. I never thought I'd be here. And he said, I, I can't go on. And I have that on, on, on audio. I mean, I have a video of it, but it's too dark. So it's, it's audio, but that's, you know, that's on YouTube and people can see it. Yeah, well, I was stand, standing with Mr. Goldberg, standing right there. The door was shut. And we were, you can imagine, about two, at least between 150 to 200 people, maybe a little bit more, stand, uh, standing or sitting, or, uh, you couldn't lay down. So what did, what did it feel like in that, in that room in the dark, listening to this? I, it was, I mean, it was, I can't, it's again, I knew the story, but I'm like, I can't believe he's telling this story here. It's just a really brave thing to do, to say, I, I'm going to make sure there's a record with the people who are going to hear me tell this story will presumably tell the story to other people. If somebody says, oh, I don't think the Holocaust happened. It's like, you know, I was in a cattle car with a 90 year old and he described to us, you know, what, what happened. And it was no... The only tiny window was on the side over here. I was leaning on the wall, and a friend of mine was leaning next to me, and that's how it was. This was when on when I was uh, when they took us from one camp to another. And the last camp was uh, they uh, bombed one side, then they bombed the other side. And you can imagine a big car like this picking up us three, four, five feet in the air and fell down. So what kind of feeling that was. And uh, at that time I passed out. I think I told you about it. I went to heaven and then I came back. And about 10 minutes after, the, the, we saw the people running, having DSS. The guards running away, and uh, and the uh, the was a Polish unit, and the end of the train, 
and they chased them. Finally, they opened the door, and we went out in the, to the crater. And the Red Cross came, and they fed us, they threw us packages, and they told us not to eat. Some of them ate fast. They passed out, they went to the hospital, and some of them died instantly. But so I didn't eat any, hardly any. And uh, they, as we were walking, they took us away. And they, uh, the MP got us and they, put a, they took us to a camp. And that's how, how, was, how, was, how, was, I, how I was liberated. To step back into a cattle car and not just have those memories come back into your brain, but to share with students and your great-granddaughters and your daughter what it was like to be there is remarkable. I don't think a lot of, I mean, a lot of Holocaust survivors don't want to talk about it. Abe was someone who didn't talk about this for 50 years. But it just, I, I, you know, that a 90-year-old would, would do that, it's not, he's not doing it for himself, right? He's not doing it, to, he, he, he's doing it for the students and to make sure that the story lives on. And it was, uh, yeah, it was incredibly, incredibly powerful. I, I can picture it right now. I didn't think I would ever set foot in a car. And my heart, my heart, my heart is pounding. And uh, I had to show you how it was like we were in the elevator. We were packed in. That's, that's how it was in the cattle car. I, I don't know if I'm here or not. Uh, it's, it's hard to believe. And, uh, I, I, can't, I, I, I can't go any, any, any further. Yeah. That's, yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, so following that, like what happened following that with, with Abe and with your relationship to his story? Yes, I mean, I, did, I, I said, I, this is, you have an amazing story. I, could I continue to follow up with you? And he said, sure. So that, that trip was April. Um, I went and interviewed him. I actually went on my birthday, May 19th. I went and hung out with Abe for about two hours. When I went to interview him, I just had my iPhone with me. And I wanted to get you know better video, better audio. So some of my former students from Cary Academy who were into you know video recording came by, and they had good lighting, and we we did a session. And I I didn't I'd intended to do you know like ten sessions like that to you know sort of what you're doing with me, where there's prep and you you know set it up and make sure that you have some structure to it. But he has I mean there's so many stories you could unpack with him, like the time in displaced persons camp and. And then just t setting aside the Holocaust story, like he's a remarkable immigrant story. He came to the U.S. with five bucks in his pocket, um, barely speaking the language, no relatives. Um, he's 18 and a half years old. Ship pops in to, you know, pass the Statue of Liberty and they ask him, do you want to go to California or Connecticut? And he says, which one's closer? And they said, Connecticut. He said, let's go with that. And uh, that, he starts, starts his life. Got married and, you know, married for 63 years to this woman. He never, that was the thing we were going to talk about next was his relationship with his wife 
and he, he never wanted to do that with me, but he was getting comfortable enough that he was going to. Um, but we, we never got to do that. Um, and why, why, did, why weren't you able to do that? Well, but he, so after I interviewed him that one time with the lights and the good stuff, and then he got busy, I got busy, and my school started, and I was going to bring him in in September, which was too early for my course, but I wanted to make sure nothing happened. And uh, my instinct was right, but my timing was wrong because he fell um, in early September. And um, he was doing work in his garage and he just fell over. And apparently he was lying on the ground bleeding for about three hours. Um, you know, his daughter called and he, nobody answered. And he had a girlfriend. Um, she called, nobody answered. They asked the next door neighbor to come by and check on him. And, and they did. And... Uh, they ended up having to take him to the hospital, and um, he was—he ended up being in a, a neck brace and a wheelchair for about three weeks. And uh, while he was recovering in the hospital, my wife and son had never met him, and I called him and I said, you know, I, I visited him a couple of times in the hospital right when he fell, and then um, I said, you know, can, can can we come and visit? How's Two thirty, and he said, "Why don't you?" How's two o'clock? He said, "Why don't you come at two thirty? So we kept him up the elevator toward his room in the hospital. He's being wheeled down the hall to a big open area, and he gave what turned out to be the last talk of his life um, to a group of about sixty, seventy people in the hospital: the doctors, the nurses, the staff, the, some patients who were mobile and wanted to hear a survivor. And he did his thing. If you Google Abe Piasek Hospital. Uh, you'll see the local news coverage of him doing that. Um, and he went into hospice care in either late December, or early January, and um, he passed away on January 15th, which is Martin Luther King's birthday, which I know because I did a lot of teaching of the civil rights movement, so that he was born on um, Kristallnacht. He was born in 1928. Kristallnacht was on his 10th birthday, um, that, 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 that that's his birthday and that Martin Luther King's birthday is the day he passed away, or I think it, it feels significant to me anyway. It makes it easier for me to remember, certainly. Um, and I visited him three days before he died. And when I talked with him, you know, he, was, he, was very, he was not able to speak that much. It was kind of a quiet conversation. But he said, you know, keep telling my story. And I said, of course, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Um, and so that, I decided to, to do that. That's amazing. And that's what you're doing now. Right. Since meeting Abe, Steve has researched Abe's life extensively. He's put together a series of talks that weaves together Abe's videotaped testimonies with maps and images to help bring Abe's story to life. His next talk will be a digital event hosted by the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University, and he plans to do a number more in the subsequent months. So for you, like, you know, what's driving you to keep doing this? Like, I mean, it's, it's a stupid question, but I ask everyone because sometimes there's a, stupid questions yield good answers. I mean, you have told it a lot and he's told it a lot and, you know, you could just leave it alone and share it over dinner every now and then with people. Um, why keep doing it and push push to share it in, in such like a substantial way? 
it, so that's a great question. I think if I if I don't do it, if I just leave it alone and you know occasionally it comes up, it's not going to come up at dinner. Frankly, you know, like I would I would, I would never be invited back to dinner. Like, why are you talking about the Holocaust at a at a dinner party? So that's and that's the same thing with his family. Like, it never came up. His grand he he didn't. We had this moment where I was um, having a, on a Zoom call with his three grandkids who live in Hawaii and one in uh, California and his son and his daughter and. And one of the grandsons said, you know, it's not like he sat me on his lap and said, let me tell you a horrible story. And his son was like a light bulb went off. He's like, you know, that's true. He never did that. He wanted to protect his family. Right. He didn't want to he didn't want to burden them with this. So if if I didn't tell this story, nobody else would know it, really. Like, why would you you would you wouldn't search for Abe Piasek and you wouldn't know his story and you probably wouldn't know about the Holocaust. But if, if I'm able to create, say, 50 experiences for people over the next school year, that would be that would be what Abe would do in like five years. And that would mean a lot. His story is really powerful. Um, and survivors are few and far between. There are very few survivors left. Um, and those that are left are in their late 80s and early 90s. So if me, somebody in my early 50s, can tell Abe's story to a new generation of people, that's really meaningful. And that's, that's something that they will remember. And what I'm doing is I'm, I'm following up on social media and through watching DVDs with people who he talk, talked with, and they remember it vividly. He just, he, you don't forget meeting Abe Piasek. And so the question is, can I be a proxy? Can they, like, I remember meeting Abe Piasek I don't remember the guy's name, but there was some guy, I think it was Goldstein, Goldberg, whatever. And he, but he, let me show you these video clips of Abe Piasek that are still alive and they can show it to their kids. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a, I think it's a good concrete way to begin to empathize with the Holocaust. Yeah. And that's something that I ran into a lot with, um, like, because, you know, my family has a Holocaust story. I mean, my great-grandfather was killed in Auschwitz, and my grandfather was taken to a labor camp. And um, the reason I started making documentaries in, in part was to investigate all that. Um, so I interviewed a lot of people who now have passed away. Um, and I, too, feel this, like, sudden realization where, well, they haven't actually told that to that many people. Um, I am now have it. They they gave me their story in some ways they they trusted me as a as a as one of a few people uh who are who now hold it and so what do i do with that um and and it's like a fundamental like human thing almost to 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 maintain these these stories that are so important in terms of uh humanity at its worst and at its best uh which is i don't know it's just it's a interesting thing to do as a human on earth to do that <laughs> well I, I mean i think what, what happens with the holocaust is you get the paragraph summary right state sponsored killing of six million jews 11 to 13 million people and it's kind of flat right it's like yeah that was really bad and you know and but but it's that old saying like you know a million people dying is a statistic, one person dying is a tragedy. And so what happened to Abe, um, I was just listening to a DVD that I found and his, his uh, daughter gave me this box of like three, bo three boxes of stuff of his. And one of them had eight DVDs in it. 
and I, I, my DVD player doesn't work. I had to get a new DVD player. Um, and I'm, I'm watching him, and I get little details because I know the story now. And he says that he had 30, 35, 40 members of his family um, in Poland with him. And most of them died. Maybe three or four, four or five survived. And, you know, he's one of them. And when you, when you hear his story, it, 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 it doesn't matter if it's Abe's story or Anne Frank's story or Ellie Wiesel's night. Like, you need something to humanize to, to, for you to empathize with. So it's not just like a, a Jeopardy question that, oh, yeah, it was 5.7 million or 6 million or that. You're not feeling anything, right? And you have to slow down and take time to, to hear and think about his story. Um, I don't think we do that enough as a culture. We do, we're, we're in too much of a hurry, right? So um, you hear about children being separated from their parents at the border and you got to move on to the next thing. It's like, well, what if you met one of those children, right? I don't know if any of them have been interviewed because that would be really dicey, but you know, what, what is that, uh, what, what is one of those stories like? And then we're going to multiply that by 400, 500, however many kids there are. My God, for the Holocaust to multiply it by 9 million Jews who were affected, right? Abe's one of the 3 million who survived. But two-thirds of, of Europe's Jews were wiped out. And I learned just by, talk, by doing some research, Poland had 3.3 million Jews and 3 million of them were killed. That's 90%. If you were a Polish Jew, you had a one in 10 chance of surviving the Holocaust. Um, so it's a, it's a remarkable story.